0: Hello and welcome to The Critic Podcast. I'm David Scullion, the Deputy Political Editor, and this week our political editor Graham Stewart and I spoke to John Whittingdale MP about the future of the BBC just before he was made a Minister of State for Culture, Media and Sport in the Government Reshuffle. Graham also spoke to critic writer Alexander Larman about whether the Oscars is going to stay woke, and he also caught up with Adam Dant on a Westminster pub crawl as he discussed the history of the Division Bell and the pubs and restaurants around Westminster.
1: Well, uh, David and I are here now in Portcullis House overlooking the Palace of Westminster on reshuffle day and we're with someone who's seen it all, John Whittingdale, uh, who has said, uh, what, a d- c- celebrating, I hope that's the right word, 28 years in Parliament. Indeed. Uh, and uh, a long and distinguished uh, history of political involvement before that as well. Uh, we have a new culture and media and Sports Secretary today in uh, Oliver Dowden. Um, John you were uh, for many years the chair of of the committee and then Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport. Um, what do you think will be in the intray for uh, Mr Dowden and is it similar to what was awaiting you?
2: Um, there are some big issues which obviously were manifesto commitments so those are the first ones that need to be delivered the principal one is the the uh, importance of extending fast broadband to the whole country that is something which the government has made a very firm commitment it's not as easy as it sounds Um, we have actually been quite successful in getting broadband to uh, about 95% but it becomes steadily harder as you get into the last few people um, but that is a firm commitment, it's likely to cost some money, but there are also challenges uh, into how you deliver, best deliver it. That's That I'd say is the top issue on the agenda. Um, now there is this suggestion that Ofcom somehow should become a regulator really of the internet. I think, firstly, there are real challenges in doing that because how do you regulate sites which may be. Um, Located, you know, the other side of the planet In countries that actually aren't going to be very concerned about Mm -hmm. And and Uh, here today gone tomorrow And also here today gone tomorrow And then there is the desirability Uh, And as I say, there are concerns about the effect on freedom of speech So this will be a very big debate
0: There's a huge amount of um, anecdotal evidence of social media sites Censoring predominantly conservative voices Have you got any thoughts on that? Um, I, I, I... i wouldn't say that i was particularly aware
2: of that i mean i am the the, the power of facebook uh, particularly uh, and the impact it is having on other uh, news providers for instance is a matter of concern um i i don't think i would say that i had seen evidence that they were particularly targeting conservative uh, voices rather than um, left-wing voices, but well, I mean, it, it concerns me slightly that Facebook have this power and are pretty unaccountable. I mean, they, they decide and I have a constituent who has been form, informed by Facebook that some material he put up went against their sort of political policy and therefore he's being told he no longer has access. Now, that's something of which, against which there is no appeal I mean, it's a decision of Facebook
1: an old media which feels very threatened by new media is, is of course the BBC and at, uh, in, in your time as Secretary of State uh, the BBC's charter renewal was one of the key matters in your intray and, and uh, it was given another uh, 11 year, mm-hmm. it was moved from 10 to 11 year, 11 year renewal period for its licence fee. We're now at a stage where the government has just announced that, that kind of mid-term consultation period with the future of the licence fee. There are issues such as, should, uh, should it still be a criminal offence not to pay it? Uh, and is the licence fee the best model uh, after 2027 when the, the current charter expires? Uh, what, what, what's your advice to well, the new Culture Media and Sports Secretary?
2: I mean, Obviously all of these are issues that we looked at, um, not that long ago. Um, you know, when I was overseeing Charter and Newell, it's only what four or five years ago and as you say the Charter was set to run until 2027 and well, it, at the time it was felt that these matters had been resolved for at least the next uh, sort of five, six years. Um, suddenly this debate has flared up again. Now, I think decriminalization is a very narrow debate. It was one where I was personally sympathetic to the case. It is arguable that it is wrong for the BBC alone to have a requirement that you pay the charge they levy enforced by criminal sanction. I mean, the council tax is not enforced by criminal sanction nor is your water bill, for instance, but. the BBC's licence fee is Um, but we are where we are so the question is if you decriminalise it what difference does that make and the report which uh, was commissioned actually by Sajid Javid when he was Culture Secretary but I received uh, by somebody called Perry who, who carried out an independent review he said that the likely consequence of decriminalization would be an increase in evasion um, you, the government would almost be saying to people look you know it's not that serious um, and that could cost the bbc up to 200 million pounds
1: well, would i mean is it your view a subscription model which is what the bbc's uh, emerging competitors are doing. One thinks obviously of Netflix, something I which scarcely existed. Uh, there is a you massive know, at, at problem. Time last in
2: your- you can't do it yeah. because the whole point of subscription is you choose whether or not you want to pay and therefore to receive the programmes. There is no mechanism to turn off the BBC. Netflix and Apple and Amazon are all online streaming services. You can only get them if you've got fast broadband. So if you were to move to subscription for the BBC, you would have to make it an online service, just like Netflix. There are large parts of the country that haven't got broadband, or indeed choose not to pay for it. So the consequence is you are turning around to saying to all those households that don't have fast broadband, you can't get the BBC anymore. Now, politically that would be utterly impossible, so it is just not possible to make the BBC a voluntary subscription service for as long as it is broadcast on Freeview. And we are some way off being able to switch off Freeview and put it all uh, online. Actually, it takes us back to what I said to you uh, when we first started discussing this, which was the first item on the agenda of the incoming Secretary of State, which is to deliver broadband to the whole country. But that will take probably at least five or six years, and even then you've got to, you will have people who say, "Well all right, I, I know I can get broadband, but why do I need to have it? I'm very yes. happy with my you know five channels I get from Freeview, and I don't you know want to have massive access, you know elderly people mm-hmm. particularly, and yet you would then be saying to them, "Well, if you want to go on getting the BBC, you 're going to have to subscribe to broadband, and that's mm-hmm. going to cost you what." £30, £40 a
1: Uh, month. Yeah,
2: uh, before you even get on to whether whether or not you want to pay the charge of the BBC. So I think it is much more complicated than people um, realise. And it's very easy to say, well, why can't it be like Netflix? But Netflix is not available to everybody. Mm. Um, Netflix is also massively in debt. Netflix is It's new to the
1: game uh, and the BBC might be in a happier position. But nevertheless, before we announce Netflix as the future, we have to concede that it's a long way from being profitable. It is.
2: It is. And it has the most extraordinary global reach. And the vast majority of programmes on Netflix are made for a global audience. The only programme on Netflix which is very clearly British is The Crown. Now... It appears there is actually a global audience who are interested in the British Royal Family and so are happy to watch The Crown. But everything else is not really British. And even a show like Sex Education, which is made in the UK and is set in the UK, but it is deliberately made in a way that it's not obvious it's in the UK. It could be almost anywhere, and that's Mm. deliberate. Mm. So if one of the things the BBC does, and actually the other public service broadcasters, is make what is clearly British content um, now, I, I, the BBC doesn't have a monopoly of this. You could say the same about ITVs, uh, dramas and content. Um, and so you know, that is also something which it's very important, I think, we try and preserve. Now, I think a compulsory licence fee does become harder to justify as more and more people can genuinely say, I just don't watch the BBC, and therefore why should I have to pay for it if I'm not looking at it? And there will come a time when... Technically, it is possible to move to a voluntary subscription service, but as I say, it's only when we have achieved one hundred percent broadband coverage across the country.
0: But what's wrong with um, like privatisation and just running adverts like ITV do?
2: Well, the, the, the problem with that is TV advertising is dropping quite fast, mainly because there is so much more uh, opportunity to advertise online. And if you look at the overall advertising spend. It is moving online, so the amount of money that ITV gets from TV advertising is falling. If you then suddenly introduce a whole other ad funded broadcaster, I mean, the, the effect on ITV would be to bankrupt it. And, and I don't think there is enough advertising money to, to sustain two massive broadcasters. And you know, the BBC's revenue is, or well, from a licence fee, about £3.7 billion. And you know that you could not make that up with advertising. Is that a problem? Well, if you if you believe in public service broadcasting, and I do, I think there is still a role for the BBC. And of course, some of what the BBC does, you couldn't make voluntary subscription. However much you would like to, I'm a radio. There is no mechanism for choosing whether or not you subscribe to radio. Um, and advertising. I'm the first people who would scream at the idea of BBC being funded by advertising is ITV, because obviously the the amount that ITV could charge for advertising would drop dramatically. Um, and I, I, I mean, I think the consequence if you tried to fund the BBC and ITV both by advertising, and of course Channel Four is also funded by advertising. I mean, you would probably bankrupt all of them. So.
1: Advertising is not looking an attractive model for the BBC. Uh, a subscription model is is attractive, but uh, not but possible not, not in the short term, but short to medium term because of because of broadband. There's also the issue of uh, the BBC wanting to produce content which isn't marketable around the world as much as Netflix is. We're, we're running oh, out mean, the of BBC,
2: alternative options. The BBC does make content which does sell around the world, mm. but it is it is very British. I mean, mm. there is a you know, I mean, it's not a BBC show; it's an ITV show. But Downtown Abbey*, for mm. instance, which you can get more British, sells around the world. As does BBC shows like. Doctor Who and Sherlock. Um, So it's not to say you can't sell British shows, but they are not. You know, they are very successful shows here, and then Mm -hmm. actually, BBC is lucky and discovers they can't. There's a lot of
1: other BBC material that isn't marketable in that way. And local radio. I mean, for for example, I mean, you know, how's that going to be funded? Well, it couldn't possibly be. And and maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe local radio is something the BBC need not do. Maybe. It's an area where... It, it, well, the problem is
2: nobody else will do it. Okay. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm a strong supporter of BBC Local Radio, and the truth is that there are commercial radio stations locally, but if you listen to them, they are predominantly music-based.
1: So maybe we're trying to solve a problem that, that doesn't exist, by which I mean we're trying to find a, succession, a successor to a licence fee, and actually when we look at the other options... Maybe we we do just stay with the old tried and tested for its problems. The licence fee is... That
2: that is exactly why I agreed a charter, which will run till 2027, maintaining the licence fee. Mm -hmm. Because, at the moment... I don't think there is any alternative. The only alternative you could have, I don't think advertising would work and subscription, as I've explained, can't be done, would be to get rid of a license fee and have it directly funded by the government, which is an alternative. Mm-hmm. But then there become concerns about, you know, the extent to which the government might interfere by sort of cutting off money if they didn't like what the BBC was broadcasting. Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't actually make a difference in the it's still paid for out of people's taxes the only difference is and this is an argument is that the license fee is the most regressive tax out there because it is a flat rate tax it doesn't matter what your income is you have to pay 155 pounds thereabouts a year in the license fee and if you're on a very low income you still have to pay it I mean, I was once criticised for saying it's worse than the poll tax. What I meant when I said it's worse than the poll tax is that it, the poll tax also was a flat rate charge, but actually there was help available, was a, a, poll, a community charge benefit so that people on very low incomes could get help. The BBC licence fee doesn't have that. So it is highly regressive, but that's just the way it's been designed. If, if you move to public funding then at least, you know, if it came out of general taxation, it would not have that regressive effect.
1: We will have to leave it there. <laughs> we can, the, the debate continues. We've talk and, about this for a long and time. And will run for some time. John Rittingdale, thank you very much for joining the, the Critic Podcast. Up next,
0: Graham met Alexander Larmann, the author and journalist.
1: The Oscars have come to Tinseltown, come and gone. The envelopes have been opened. The little golden statuettes has been waved. Was this year special? Will it be remembered in the future? Is there a trend towards wokeness? Uh, is it a passing phase? Observing what's been going on has been Alexander Laman, the critic, writer and historian. Um, Alexander, welcome to the Critic Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. So... Uh, let let's start at the top, shall we? Uh, Parasite. A worthy winner, would it have won a few years ago, or is it part of a, of a modern
3: trend? Well, the first thing to say about Parasite is it's an absolutely superb film. It won Palme d'Or at it Cannes, it's won award after award since, and it's got a lot to say about modern society and modern culture, both in South Korea and beyond. It's quite easy to see how it won in 2020 but I would argue that it's nowhere near the best film of the year. I'd argue that 1917 is a far greater artistic achievement and it's likely to be remembered long beyond it. But I think that what 1917 doesn't do is to reflect anything about modern society. Parasite does, and that's why I think it's been so lavishly garlanded.
1: Has it always been the case, though, that uh, the Academy rewarded films which said
3: something about society, or is this a very new phenomenon? The Academy have always wanted to seem relevant. I mean, if you go back 40 years ago when the best film of the year was said to be ordinary people rather than Raging Bull, you often see a tradition that we can look back on now when the wrong film has been awarded the Oscar. And yet, I mean, the most infamous was about 13 years ago when Crash won over Brookback Mountain.
1: I don't know. I think Braveheart
3: was pretty poor. (laughs) uh, And I say that as a Scotsman, but carry on. (laughs) But what you often see, and actually, it was interesting with Crash winning over Brickback Mountain, because Brickback Mountain is clearly a better film. And actually, in many respects, its depiction of a homosexual relationship was much more liberal than anything in Crash. But what you see with cinema now is there is a fear of films being made which are going to offend people, and then a fear of those films not being awarded for the Oscars in the right way.
1: You've written about this uh, for The Critic, and one of the themes you pick up is a change in the membership of the Academy itself. Is that the fundamental reason for a change, or is it actually just society has different expectations
3: of Hollywood these days? I think it's for different membership, actually, because if you look back at the 90s and the early 2000s, films like Braveheart, films like Gladiator would routinely win Best Film. These of violent, le- lengthy, very male-orientated epics. Films like that aren't winning Best Film anymore. I mean, the films like 1917 and Dunkirk and Hacksaw Ridge, which have been the big war films nominated for the Best Film in the last few years, have been nominated but haven't won. Whereas a few years ago, they certainly would have won. And I think what the Academy membership is now is it's younger, it's more female, it's more diverse. And this is a conscious effort by the Academy to bring in a wider range of people voting for their films.
1: And does that mean that the Academy members are more representative of uh, Western society in America in particular? Or actually, are, are they strangely less representative in that they are they are more focused on
3: uh, a political agenda than than your, your average cinema-goer? I'd argue it's a bit like Labour voters in this country, actually. I'd argue that it's predominantly middle-class, educated people who... The kind of films they're going to seek out are not the kind of films your average American are going to be interested in. A film like Parasite will do exceptionally well in New York and Los Angeles in university cities but it's not going to play in middle America because it's a subtitled South Korean film about the class system and about inequality and so what you have to ask is is the Academy at all representative of contemporary America and I'd say on this evidence probably not And actually, if you look at the last few films to have won Best Film at the Oscars, we had The Shape of Water, which is excellent, we have Moonlight, which I think is overrated, we have Spotlight, we have this year, of course, Parasite. You're not talking about a range of films, which are necessarily big audience films. I mean, I'd say in the last decade, films that have won Best Picture at the Oscars have probably made a lot less money than films of the previous 10 years. Isn't this a good thing, though?
1: I mean, if we just wanted to reward what the... The public liked, then we could just uh, flash up the the box office figures, and we could uh, uh, applaud that, and uh, or go home again. Isn't the whole point of having a form of critical criteria to
3: uh, identify other reasons for uh, highlighting and rewarding films? Well, certainly, once upon a time, films like Titanic, and indeed, if you go back even further, films like Ben Hur were winning Best Picture at the Oscars as a well done, as a pass on the back. I mean, Titanic a very strong spectacle of view to the cinema, but a rather embarrassingly trite Mills and Boone film we've watched at home. Mm. It clearly won all its Oscars as a reward for James Cameron, as a thank you for not destroying the film industry. Mm -hmm. These days, that isn't a consideration, because the films that make the most money are the Marvel films, like Avengers Endgame, which are fine, but I'm with Scorsese on this. for films that are essentially the McDonald's of cinema. They're not anything special. You watch them, they're enjoyable. You wouldn't want to watch them again
1: the viewing figures have been on a generally downward trend in recent years and uh, this year's oscars has had the the lowest viewing figures of, of of modern times is this because just fewer people watching tv or is it uh, actually uh, the wider audiences lost interest in
3: a ceremony that rewards films they don't want to watch oscars so unwatched you might call it i think it's because the oscar show is not very good I think that dispensing with a host hasn't made an awful lot of difference. There is, of course, a joke to be made about how Parasite won despite not needing a host, which I thought was quite good. But no, I think that ultimately there's, there's still performances that use interpretive dance. There's still too many presenters. And in fact, this year's show had a presenter for a presenter at one point. And you think, why do you need that? And I mean, any good awards show should be two hours long. It doesn't need to be any longer than that. The speeches should be short, they should be pithy, they should have something to say about the film and about the industry, not, as Wackin' Phoenix reminds us, about dairy farming. And I feel that the Oscars are much less essential than they used to be. I'm not sure that a film-winning Best Picture at the Oscars translates into box office upheaval anymore. I'm just not sure that it's going to do that sort of thing.
1: I remember a time when Oscar speeches involved uh, a lot of... uh, Emotion, but uh, gratitude and thanks to the people who made it possible. Increasingly, what we're remembering is the speeches which are uh, political in nature, and this year, uh, no exception. I- is there a danger that, as we reflect on the Oscars uh, in recent times, we-, we remember more the political
3: grandstanding that- than the films that actually won? What I'd be interested by, and I can't see this happening, would be if somebody's done this as unconservative. I'd be absolutely astonished if anyone was to stand up and say anything patriotic. I mean, it goes without saying nobody would ever praise Donald Trump because they Mm. wouldn't work again. But Mm. what I'm finding very interesting in the British acting community at the moment is Lawrence Fox Mm. because I know for a fact for various people who share Fox's political views but know their careers would be over overnight if they expressed them publicly. But there should surely be an opportunity for Conservatives to be able to express their views and not be judged for it because... If you look at the conservative actors in America, you think of people like John Voight, James Woods, Kelsey Grammer, all of whom you know excellent actors, but they're not young people. There must be people in their 30s and 40s who have views and would like to express those. But I think your career be over overnight if you express them publicly.
1: Uh, comparing this year's Oscar Awards with the BAFTAs, BAFTAs got into trouble, even got royal disapproval for not having uh, sufficient diversity in in Prince William's view, Uh, but, you know, rewarded 1917 Mm -hmm. and generally made choices that, that have not been uh, controversial with with the with, with the viewing public as distinct from critics. Is is the BAFTAs is the BAFTAs doing something right in in that that the, the Oscars are doing wrong, or actually is is the BAFTAs just
3: two years behind the curve? I think that the BAFTA membership is very different to the Academy membership because I think obviously it's mainly composed of British filmmakers and people who write about film for a living and people who are involved in the film industry, and I feel that. If I looked at social media, you would assume that most people in the film industry are very left-wing. I mean, most film critics are, I could say, liberal to left-wing and they express their views and their titles throughout prison. But I think that ultimately, a lot of people in the film industry are not left-wing and are, I mean, I think conservative in Britain has a very different sense to conservative in America when you talk about the film industry, because I think you can have people who are small-c conservative And thus a film like 1917, which is a very heartfelt tribute to courage and to patriotism and to duty, is going to go down much better amongst a certain kind of person, rather than others who say, oh, war is hell, why do we need to watch a film about it?
1: If we carry on at the current rate of popular disengagement at the Oscars, is it going to become actually quite marginal in 10 years' time? Or
3: is this just, are we going through a phase? I think that everyone always wants to see awards for films, even if some years it does feel somewhat all, all must have prizes. I think that not having a host has been quite an interesting innovation. It certainly made the running time shorter, although padded out with interpretive dance it's never that useful. I think that ultimately so much money is spent on the Oscar race, but you have, I mean, for instance, last year, Richard D. Grant should have won Best Supporting Actor. It was his best performance. It was the Best Supporting Performance of the Year and he had the most interesting campaign as well, but he didn't win because Green Book won for many things. And I think Green Book was seen as a film that had to be rewarded because it had its liberal message about tolerance, whereas Grant's performance, which was, you know, it's up there with Wivnell for him, was not deemed worthy because it wasn't saying anything. But I think what we're going to get to in a couple of years is a sense people are bored of being told you've got to go along with this because it's worthy, because it's woke. I think people are going to say instead, well, hang on, can we not just judge on achievement? Can we not just not judge on who's the best film of the year? So I think the backlash is coming.
1: So we can look forward to future years where generally the best films, the best actors win, and the speeches are
3: about the quality of filmmaking rather than the state of the world? I think one of the problems... I mean, for instance, Brad Pitt won this year for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood very popular win, very popular performance. He's not a supporting actor in it, he's the co-lead. And often you see these dodges being put in in order to reward an actor who hasn't won before. And sometimes, as we read with Norton, who I would have assumed from his early days in his career that he would have won an Oscar by now, his star has somewhat waned, and so now that doesn't seem so likely. But often there are people, I mean, Laura Dern, for instance, who have been around so long and have given so many good performances, there's a sense, right, it's your turn this year. And that's not going to change. I mean, it's true for directors, it's true for actors, it's true for actresses, it's true even for cinematographers. I mean, Rich Deakins won his second award this year for 1917, which is one of the best photographed films I've ever seen in my life. But he'd been nominated before he won for Blade Runner 2, I think 13 times. And so there is a sense sometimes of people being recognized because it's their turn. And I think that's something that we're not going to see the end of.
1: Well, uh, Alex, it's time to take off makeup. It's time to uh, dim the lights. The credits are going to have to roll now. But thank you very much for joining the Critic Podcast to discuss this year's Oscars and the state of filmmaking in Hollywood and beyond. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Well, the Critic Podcast moves to one of Westminster's uh, most famous pubs. Uh, It moves to the Albert, which has been here uh, since the middle of Queen Victoria's reign. And I'm with uh, the Critic's artist in residence,
4: Adam Dant. Um, Adam, welcome to the Critic Podcast. Thank you for having me. Did you notice Queen Victoria's napkin on the way out? I did not notice,
1: I I just thought that was uh, waiting to be laundered, but (laughs) I'll uh, I'll, I'll, uh, inspect it later. Adam, you've been on a tour of uh, Westminster... Uh, licensed premises today all for Although, research, otherwise
4: known as a pub crawl all
1: for research purposes Absolutely, it should yeah. be made clear uh, because in this mum's edition of The Critic uh, your work of art is the uh, Division Bell bars, restaurants and other uh, hotspots in which the uh, political denizens of the Palace of Westminster find exactly. themselves, and they
4: are hotspots that each has um, got its own little red bell next to it. It's it's a map that shows the sites of um, you know, what's commonly known as the division bells outside of the the Palace of Westminster, mm-hmm. and um, I mean I I knew uh, very little if. If anything at all about division bells, until I started um, visiting Portcullis House for my breakfast, And a bell would go off for a for a certain amount of time, which I was then told was eight minutes, um, within which um, amount of time the MPs would have to get back to the chamber to vote. Um, so I've heard. So, uh, i come across the you know the idea of um, I must have a house in in uh, Albert Square. Cause I need to be within the division bell, but I, I had no idea as to how this this Thing functioned as a uh, as a technology
1: and it, it's alleged that there are about 200 division bells uh wired up to the palace of Westminster. if you believe wikipedia if you believe wikipedia uh, you, your experience though today on this important research quest has suggested that figure may be a little bit out of
4: date it could be so my my map is based on uh the research i could do through wikipedia and and various books and historical whatnots. Uh, but i i thought I should do a proper tour of all of these places, not 200 of them, there's about uh, maybe 25 scattered around the uh, Parliamentary Estate here. Obviously, if you're on the Parliamentary Estate, one of the last places I visited was 1 George Street, the Institution of Civil Engineers, and they have have bells throughout the building, which sound. Um, But then other places such as this pub, the Albert, has a bell in the corner that's, it seems to be more historical artifact than anything else. Although it does occasionally ring, and I was told by the landlord that they do pay three grand a year to have this service. And they're,
1: they're paying that to the Palace of Westminster or to BT? I sounds wonder. like
4: they're paying it to BT, right, so as I can right. work out. Because when we visited um, the restaurant, Quirinale, and um, the Osteria del Angelo, mm-hmm. they both um, told me that they'd have their bells removed because they didn't want to pay the, the bill anymore. Right, But then <laughs> a very drunk man in the red line said that's... Um, BS. Right. But, uh, uh-huh. So, um, getting to the bottom of this thing, I think it's going to make it. Once I do get to the bottom of it, um,
1: we 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 we're, we're told that
4: that uh, these days, uh, uh,
1: Parliament is a more family-friendly place. Back mm-hmm. in the back in the old days. Uh, divisions up to and past midnight were regular occurrences, Mm -hmm. now they are infrequent, uh, they do happen, but they are infrequent occurrences. I wonder how that has changed the um, political
4: alcohol nexus that is right. uh, the city of Westminster you can have a division bell in your home if you are within the eight minutes required to get to the to the chamber but as you say if you've got um, children in the nursery sleeping next door you don't want a bell going off for eight minutes mm-hmm. in the hallway um, and there's probably an app for that nowadays as well I imagine that um, the division is communicated via a uh, you know, modern um, self-serving devices. I, I understand. Uh, among the places you visited today, you,
1: you ventured into the St Ermin's Hotel. The yeah. St Ermin's is. is is famous for being a uh, certainly during the Cold War as a nest of spies. Mm-hmm. This James Bond's uh, place, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, did you did you spy any politicians there, or,
4: or what uh, what's happening to a their kind of high end f- funeral I think was about to, to happen. There are lots of people dressed in black, a right. funereal black. Right. Right. And um, the the staff there are very proud of their division bell, uh, which is in the in the lobby, mm-hmm. which they assured me doesn't ring anymore.
1: Right. Right, so it leads us to think that really, a lot. You know, one doesn't want to say the, the, the. Uh, for whom the bell tolls, but uh, it does sound as a division bell uh, is tolling, it's, it's, tolling for itself. Yeah. now. tolling for itself now? Do you feel when you go to uh, the bars around Westminster, there is a there is a real political feel? Do you feel political history is here, or actually now the pubs of Westminster are no different to the pubs of well, I suppose, uh, anywhere else um, in central um, the,
4: London? When when the division bells were um, cited in ins- institutions and pubs and restaurants and whatnot outside of the outside of Parliament, um, well, originally they. There were no restaurants or bars in in Parliament in the nineteenth century when it was re, rebuilt, so that that was the cause for these bells being cited here. But no, we, we, we ran into a few um, politicians, MPs, politicos. Right. Nicky Morgan was going into uh, Quirinale when we. Was she indeed? Know, yeah, was she indeed? Yeah, these
1: her yeah, no. final days uh, yes. <laughs> as Culture Supremo, <laughs> yeah. the, the culture of the nation in in her hands. But no, they're
4: still they're, they're still frequented by. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, why wouldn't you want to go and have lunch in the Cinnamon Club? Yes, yes, I, I guess that is true. I, I think another
1: issue that, that seems to me um, uh, relevant, we should make clear that your research is taking you not just to the Pubs of Westminster, but you've also gone to the source, that
4: is the Palace of Westminster itself, yeah. to, to find out how it's organised. I haven't got very far with my research on that front. Um, I, I, when I worked with, um, with Parliament, it was as the official artist of the 2015 general election, so I, I, I got to know the curators there. I called them, they had no idea how the division bell worked. Um, apart from it being, you know, it, it comes from the speaker, he will call division, and someone there in the chamber will activate this bell. Um, Wikipedia will tell you it's on a 2, two Hz um, generator, which is a bit like a doorbell going off, I suppose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, but presumably someone there must flick a switch, right? But will it go off for the full eight minutes? Uh, well, if you're if you're in um, in Westminster, it does go off for the full eight minutes. Right. So you have it. Well, so that, that's where I first heard it, sitting having my breakfast in Paul Carly's house. Right. Right. One
1: feels for diners and diners
4: and winers diners, elsewhere, wondering why they're they're having
1: to. And sleeping. they got the, yep. the sound of bells in their ears, mm-hmm. but. Uh, uh, Adam, it's been wonderful to take this tour of Westminster with you. Uh, which was the pub that you felt had the greatest resonance
4: of its? Well, the Marquis of Granby told me their bell went off at eight o'clock this morning, right. which is a strange time. To Seems have a bit early to be having a But division. at least it went off. Right, right. But then um, the other suggestion I was going to make to the critic was that you should have your own critic division bell challenge to see if you can get from one of these places using various means of transport to Central Lobby in eight minutes. Because I don't believe you could get from the Albert to Central Lobby in eight minutes on foot. You I think the pace, it's but, a uh,
1: fast taxi. I think if you're on a pogo stick, it would also be quite yeah. tricky. But I, I think we should rise to the challenge that, that you set up. It's, a, it's a good the, political a sporting, the sporting event. division bell run yeah. is something that should be like uh, the dog at coat and badge. Uh, uh, Absolutely. Uh, a great historic sporting tradition mm-hmm. which uh, should uh, run for hundreds of years. You get a gong if you win. Maybe long after the age of the division bell itself has ended, but uh, let's hope it continues for many years on. Adam, it's been a pleasure talking to you.
4: Thank you. And uh, next month you will be drawing... Um, for the next issue of The Critic, I'm drawing Street Cries of Westminster. Street Cries In the 18th century style. In the 18th century, we will look forward to that. Adam Dant,
1: uh, artist and resident at The Critic, amongst many other, some might say even higher accolades, uh, thank you for your time, and I, I hope this important research project uh, will end in a suitable manner with another round. Thank you. Thank you
0: very much. We hope you've enjoyed listening to The Critic podcast, but why not get The Critic in print? Right now we're offering three issues for just £5. Go to UK for details.